I want to welcome you to the Pro Mindset Podcast. The Pro Mindset Podcast is all about diving into the headspace that results in championship performance. High-performing athletes, winners, have this mental flow and have a positive headspace for their performances and success. Join me, Craig Doman, sports attorney and NFL agent, on this podcast. I will interview pro athletes, college athletes, football coaches, and sports personalities. Together, we can discover how you can get in the flow and have your own pro mindset. Today on Pro Mindset, we have Rick Burton. Rick is currently the head honcho at Syracuse at the David Falk Sports Management Program. And Rick, I want to thank you for being on the show today. No problem. Great to be with you. And Thanks for involving me. It's uh, it's a cold, snowy day in Syracuse, so it's good to be inside talking to you, Craig. Okay, so Rick, you have a rich history in sport. Why don't you share for the audience some of the places you've been, and obviously now you're in, in the education space, but you've also been in the marketing space and in a lot of other spaces in sports. Yeah, happy to do it for you. It, listen, a really strange counterintuitive career, I think, that, that probably very few people have kind of gone down the path I have. I started off as a sports writer, and I, you know, jokingly call myself an ink-stained wretch, you know, back in the day when there were daily newspapers and people read them, and I was fortunate enough to be able to cover Syracuse University's football and basketball team and the opening of the Carrier Dome, and just an exciting time to be a young, single guy. Uh, working in sports, which had always been my objective to see if I could build a career around that. And about a year and a half into working for the newspaper, I got hired by Miller Brewing Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, to go out there corporate headquarters and do sports public relations for them. And Miller was just getting into spending a lot of money in sponsorship. Uh, they were in auto racing, the NFL, the NBA, and I was kind of a pig in heaven, I guess. It was, you know, here I was a young guy, just graduated from college, and all of a sudden I was working for a beer company and and going around to some of the biggest sporting events in the world, and then lucky enough to get promoted into the marketing side, brand management at Miller, and, and ultimately my career went to a point where I was the advertising manager for the old Miller Lite tastes great, less filling ad campaign that used to feature all the old NFL and NBA pros, you know, Deacon Jones and Bubba Smith and Dick Butkus, guys that I had really grown up, you know, fans of their, of their performances. And um, so it was, it was a great ride. Uh, we were in Milwaukee for about 12 years, and then uh, I left to go to work for a sports marketing agency and have the National Football League as my primary client did that for about three years and then took a real strange turn, went out to the University of Oregon, had a chance to get involved with a sports marketing program there in the College of Business named for Jim Warsaw, who was one of the great sport merchandisers of all time. And Jim had sold his company to Nike and uh, had given some money to the university. And I ultimately ended up as the director of the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center and doing consulting for sports leagues around the world, largely because I had worked for the NFL on the agency side and, you know, went into the Philippines and did some stuff with the Philippine Basketball Association into 
Japan for the J League, the Professional Soccer League, and over to Australia for the Pro Basketball League. And after about eight years at, at the University of Oregon, so Ducks, if there's any Pac-10, Pac-12 people listening, I got the opportunity to go down to Australia as the commissioner of the Pro Basketball League down there, the National Basketball League, and uh, jumped at the chance to get some international experience and, and and frankly, to see if I was, you know, good enough to run a sports league. Um, now, the NBL is, is small compared to leagues here in the United States, but it was a great opportunity, I think, for me to uh, to look at, you know, the key issues in professional sports uh, and look at them firsthand as the commissioner. Came back to the U.S. Uh, as the chief marketing officer for the U.S. Olympic Committee, for the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics, and then career reversed again, altered course again, and David Falk came after me to return to my alma mater. The Syracuse University had just started a sports management program, and David wanted me to come back and be the David Falk Professor of Sport Management, and, and I thought if he was good enough for Michael Jordan, he was more than good enough for me, and, and so I took him up on that offer, and I've been at Syracuse since about the end of 2009. And I won't get into any of the stuff I've done at at Syracuse because this answer has been longer than it needs to be, but it's been a great run, and and I'm just blessed to have had all those opportunities. You have been across the globe in multiple sports, Olympics, football, basketball, soccer, you name it. Let me ask you this. When you shut it down and you're in your rocking chair and maybe you're you're getting interviewed for your – memoirs what is the one thing that made the biggest impact on you of all those experiences you know i think i think one of them is is kind of a a small thing uh, but it still resonates really largely with me when i was working at miller i had been there 10 or 11 years and and i was a real corporate guy and i was loyal and and i thought that loyalty alone was something that would be rewarded. And we got a new vice president of marketing, a guy who became a dear friend named Dick Strupp. And, and Strupp was a really competitive guy. And, and uh, you know, where a lot of the executives ate in executive dining room, he didn't. And he wanted to play basketball at lunch. And he found a bunch of us who were working at Miller that, you know, wanted to go and get in a good one-hour run, you know, workout, play hardcore asphalt basketball up at a city park. And and I kind of fell into that group. And and Dick was the kind of guy that if you didn't take it to the rack, if you didn't, you know, go strong to the hole, he really didn't want you on his team. He wanted guys that really had a fire in their belly. And I think he really upped my competitive game because he he was just so passionate about it. And and I remember sitting down with him at one point and saying, hey, Dick, you know, what's my career look like here at Miller? I'm one of your guys. And he said, Rick, you need to get out of here. You need to leave. Um, You've been at Miller 10 years. We're not going to reward you for your loyalty. You need to go somewhere else and see how they do business there. And and I left and, and went to the sports marketing agency where I had the NFL as my clients. And, and I'd say I, I learned more in two years at that sports marketing agency than I had maybe in some ways in the 10 years at Miller. And I think looking back, I just have to always be appreciative for 
kind of those two pieces that Dick Strupp gave me, one which was to, to be competitive about things and to know when to get out. Um, there's a line I heard recently, heroes know when to die. And I think it was, you know, he had the confidence in my abilities to say, you need to leave here, you can do better. And he wasn't pushing me out. I mean, I could have stayed. But what he was telling me was I could fly a lot higher. And I think I, I'm just always going to be appreciative for that. Well, that's a wonderful story. That kind of uh, takes me into one of my topic areas today, which is Deshaun Watson is down in Houston, and he won a national championship with Dabo and Clemson. And, you know, I think they went like 4-12 and 12 or something like that this year. He's one of the rising stars, you know, Pro Bowl, perennial Pro Bowl quarterbacks in the NFL. And he asked for a trade today. If you're the owner, if you're Cal McNair, if you're the general manager, how would you handle that situation? And is that something that, from your professional experience, you could see the organization fixing? Or do you think he needs to get out like you needed to get out of Miller? You know, I think it's a great question. And if, if I'm looking at it from the team side as the owner or general manager, I'm in the process of bringing in a new coach, quarterback's coach who's with the Ravens. And Deshaun may not actually fit with the offensive nature of how, the, you know, the Ravens were, were working with their guy. I think the other thing is that if, if I'm the GM or the, the owner, I'm going through a mathematic calculus of what I can get for Deshaun if I'm not going to just lose him outright. And, and I think if I can't get anything for him and he's going to be dissatisfied, he's going to be a disgruntled quarterback, the position is too critical to the future of the organization to have him be that way. I think that if I've got a new coach coming in and we can target a quarterback in the draft, and you would know more than I would, Craig, as to whether or not this is a great quarterback here. I know Trevor Lawrence is coming out, but beyond that, Ian Book, I think there's a couple of good ones, but I don't know whether the Texans are in a position to get a, a quality quarterback. You know, this, the quarterback roulette is, is really tricky. If you look at the Colts right now with Phil Rivers retiring, and the Colts are kind of signaling they want to go after a veteran, I think a lot of things are up in the air right now. But generally you don't want to hang on to people that are going to be a cancer in your locker room. And, and I think if I'm looking at it from Deshaun's point of view, He's probably saying, you guys haven't put enough of a team around me for us to be really competitive, and I don't think you're going to do that anytime soon. So I want to get to some place where I've really got a chance to win. That's my read, but you, you know, you're going to know more than I would on, on a couple of those pieces. Well, it's an interesting quagmore for the organization because they're really in a lose-lose situation. If they trade him and he ends up taking the next – organization to the Super Bowl, they're going to disenfranchise their fans. And if they keep him and he's a cancer, like you suggested, which he could be, he's already got his money, then it's going to show up on the field. Every single play, you have to play with an edge because you could get killed. You could get seriously injured if you're not all in. And yeah. so for someone like Watson, he needs to be all in. So if he's not all in, it's not going to be a pretty sight at all. So. No, and I'd rather take the risk of trading him and having him do well. I mean, you know, the Patriots are going to get on to life after Brady. And that's sometimes the look of the draw, but at least get something for him rather than having him play unhappy. And 
You know, I'll tell you about a book that I use in one of my classes at Syracuse, and it's called The Captain Class. It's by the Wall Street Journal sports editor, Sam Walker. And he talks about the critical importance in the greatest legacy teams. They've always had a great captain. And on almost every NFL team, the quarterback is the captain, at least of the offense, and in a lot of cases, the captain of the locker room. And you cannot win... I don't believe if if the captain of your team is not all in. And I think with Deshaun's announcement today, you can never again trust that he really is going to be all in, at least in in Houston. Uh, He may get there in somewhere else, but I I have a hard time believing it will happen with the Texans. I 1,000% agree with that. And because there's so many NFL teams that are starving for quarterbacks right now that might overpackage picks and players to get them, it could be the biggest deal ever. It probably would be. And it might set the franchise up to be in a better place than they were or they are today if they went ahead and did the trade as long as they make good selections with those picks. Yeah, and and what you're so right about is that there's no position more important in football than the quarterback. So you can actually charge a premium for an all-pro quarterback. You've got your greatest leverage, and you've got weak teams that know that if they don't get a great quarterback, they have a problem because they can't elevate their game fast enough. And and in an era of Mahomes and Rodgers is not done yet, I think, you know, Brady's not done yet. So to get a Deshaun Watson is going to immediately lift the right team, and they're going to be willing to – to mortgage some of their future uh, to get that quarterback now because every NFL owner is in a win-now mentality. Okay, so here's the question. If the Jacksonville Jaguars would be the best trade suitor but for the fact they're the, that they're in the same division, would it make sense for both of those organizations to make that trade when Houston's going to get Trevor Lawrence and obviously the Jags are going to get the Pro Bowl quarterback, but it's like they're in the same division? Yeah, you never really want to stock the cupboard of someone you're going to see with a lot of regularity twice a year. You know, you'd prefer to go outside uh, your division, but again, it's not always possible, and it depends on what someone is willing to offer you. You know, I don't think Jacksonville is going to give up on what they hope to get in Trevor Lawrence. I don't see that happening um, because Trevor is going to be one of the most exciting young quarterbacks to come into the league. And I think there's going to be a little bit of a stigma wrapped wrapped around Deshaun that, and this is unfortunate for Deshaun because it's not deserved necessarily, but that he didn't get it done in Houston. So he didn't essentially, he didn't emerge as a winner. Again, like I say, I don't think that's his fault, but that's going to be the baggage he has to carry with him. And so I don't think Jacksonville makes that trade. Okay, so let's switch to the Olympics. Everybody talks about the Olympic spirit, and the Olympics only comes around once every four years for the respective winner in Summer Olympics. And some of those stories are just amazing in terms of the obstacles, adversity, hurdles guys and girls have had to overcome to get to the Olympics. What is kind of your perspective of the Olympic spirit, the Olympic mindset? What kind of athlete is most suitable to be successful as an Olympian? Because not everybody is. Well, you know, the the first word that comes to my mind is really 
and it's an unfortunate word, but I think there's an accuracy to it, which is that they have to be selfish. I think they've got to really be able to put themselves ahead of everybody else because they are trying to literally be the best in the world. And I think a lot of us, you know, are trained to not like selfish people, and and sometimes we don't like people who sacrifice everything and everyone around them to be the best at something. Once they are the best, then we all want to be friends with them or relatives with them, and we want to praise their hard work and their dedication and their discipline. But I think when you're talking about a 15-year-old or an 18-year-old and saying, you know, that they are going to have to sacrifice everything else because the difference between, and I saw this in my time with the U.S. Olympic Committee, the difference between making the Olympic team and not making it can in some cases be one one-hundredth of a second. It, it can be that they took one extra breath during an event. And, and so I, I think that we love our Olympians, and, and they are always Olympians. You're never an ex-Olympian or a former Olympian. But to become one, you've got to actually make a commitment that I think most of us could not make. Well, I think the thing that comes to mind from listening to your answer and being involved with the Olympics from the from a spouse standpoint is the all in factor. There isn't another sport that you just, you go all in hoping that when they do the qualifying that you actually get to go. I mean, if you're on the PGA tour, you're all in, but you're already on the tour. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, if you're on the tour, you know whether you're playing well and it may go up and down from week to week. Um, the Olympians, you know, have to train for one moment, which is usually the Olympic trials or the world championships, uh, in order to be picked in most cases, certainly in the United States, to represent a U.S. And if you don't make it happen during the trials, you don't make the team. You could be the best in the world all year long. You don't do it at the trials, which is what the USOC is looking for you to prove that you can do it under pressure. You don't go now. The other thing that can happen is your country can boycott the games or what's happening now with Tokyo 2020 has been off a year and 2021 is in the news that it might not happen. Well, you trained all your life for 2020. You kept your elite status for a little bit more into 2021. And now we're on the cusp of telling you, sorry, they're just gone. These games aren't going to happen Hope you can hang around till 2024. It's an enormously difficult life. Absolutely. And I think the other part of it is your whole identity in the sport is not all the hard work you've put in for 5, 10, 15 years. It's what you do in that 5, 10 seconds or whatever that event may take. Right. And that's your, that's your whole identity. That's your, that's your marketing leverage. It's your potential income. Everything, you know, your speaking appearances and different things like that down the road. Everything is hinged on one event. And, and, and in a lot of cases, you may be up against, you know, a legend. And the legend is almost in some cases, you know, seems supernatural. You know, if you look at Phelps in swimming or Simone Bowles in gymnastics and, and, you know, Katie Ledecky, some of these athletes just, you know, I, I chuckle. They, they almost seem like they're from another world. And, you know, your chance not only of making the team hinges in some part on whether or not you can take down a legend. It's tricky business. And and yet, 
you know, the new wave of elite athletes comes along every year, and you just have to have everything fall into place. And I think that's in part where the selfishness comes from, which is you're trying to explain to your loved ones, I apologize that, that my behavior is so incredibly focused, but if I'm not this focused, you know, it can slip away from me in a second. The synonym for selfish is focused. It's a more positive overtone, but if you're not dialed in, if you're not focused, if you're not, like, eliminating all distractions, saying no to a lot of things other people can say yes to, you have no chance of being at the top of the world. Yeah, and and you have to be willing to pee into the cup, you know, at a moment's notice because they come and knock on your door all the time to find out if you're using illegal drugs. So it, it's a it's a lifestyle that a lot of people wouldn't seek. But like celebrity, like movie stars, like authors of books, I think a lot of people imagine that it would be fun to be famous for a while. I just hope I don't have to put in all the hard work that goes with, you know, getting you to the point of being famous. No question about it. Let's go to the Falk Institute at Syracuse University, and you have all these young kids that want to go into sports. You've built a curriculum around that. What single most important thing you teach the students that if they miss this class and miss this day in class, they're not going to really understand the richness of what you're what you're trying to uh, portray? You know, I think. I think one of the things that I teach, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of your son, Jojo, now being at the University of Nebraska because I worked with a guy at Miller who got a scholarship to the University of Nebraska as a baseball pitcher. He, he threw out his arm freshman year and transferred to Nebraska Wesleyan and led the nation in punting. A guy named Jay Lynch, an old friend from 100 years ago. But Jay was from Nebraska, and he said that his father had always said to him that fair is for pigs, and by that F-A-I-R, fair, that you took pigs to the state fair. And and I think one of the things that I teach really hard on is that life is not fair, and I don't want my students using that, that, that they're somehow entitled or they deserve something or that you know, life should be kind to them. That if there was one thing I think that they might be taking away from one of my classes, it was going to be you've got to put the time in, and it's on so many levels. It's intellectual, it's spiritual, it's emotional. Uh, you cannot, in the baseball term, you cannot short hop it. You've got to be, and it's like what you said a few minutes ago about football, playing in the NFL. If you are not all in on every snap, you're going to get hurt. And I think that I'm trying to bring, you know, both that awareness that I've had from my career, that intensity, that commitment that you've got to make to your own career. And and I think that a lot of college students are really just kind of floating along. They're they're waiting for mom and dad to kind of, you know, set them up. In fact, Craig, one of the funny stories I've heard, I can't believe that it's true, but I've heard it, but that something like 10% of all recent college graduates are bringing their mothers with them to their first job interview. Yeah, I can't believe it's true, but I, I've read it, so, you know, it's on the Internet, so it must be true. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But, <laughs> but, but it's one of those things where I, I honestly believe there are, you know, there's a, a generation of kids out there, not not the entire generation, but 
a lot of kids who it's always been done for them by somebody else, and they're expecting that it's still going to be handed to them when they graduate. They're going to go, look at me. I graduated. I got a degree. Now you guys are going to give me a job, right? And I think my teaching style is one of saying, you know, don't bet on it, home slice. You need to bring your own game. No doubt about it. One of the conversations that I have with a lot of parents who have kids going on to play college sports is helping them understand that it's not going to be fair. It's going to be unpredictable. You're yeah. going to get over-recruited. You're get, you were already lied to when the coach promised you whatever he promised you or she promised you. Yeah. And if they don't overpromise, you don't go to that school. You know, Nick Saban has to tell everybody, hey, you've got a chance to be a Heisman Trophy winner. You have a chance to, to be a first-round pick. He tells everybody that. Not everybody that goes to Alabama gets to do those things. So it, it, it stands the reason that just because you get a piece of paper doesn't mean you're going to get a good job. Right. It doesn't matter if you're Ivy League. It doesn't matter what degree it is. You've got to go get – there's got to be – you've got to, have to be a bird dog. You've got to go get it. And, and you've got to be okay with not getting it and being told no a bunch of times. Because it's very unlikely, at least it's never happened to people I know, first job you interview for, you get it. Second one, you get it. You get all the promotions. Everything goes smooth. And 40 years later, you never had a, a failure. doesn't happen. Everybody yeah. fails, right? Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And and I think that, you know, I, I use the initials of the NFL. It's a famous Bum Phillips line. You know, NFL stands for not for long, you know, and you've heard that statement uh, with a lot of the guys that you've represented that, you know, if you want to stay in this league, um, you're going to have to want it a little bit more because there are a lot of guys that can do what you do. So I think that, you know, students coming out of out of universities, you know, we're pushing them to get internships, to get work experience, you know, to, to do the extra, to go the, you know, the 10th the inning kind of stuff, all the bad cliches. But I think the kids that pick up on that are, are the sharp ones, and I, I think you can tell pretty quickly. And I tell that to the students in my classes. I go, some of you are going to emerge as favorites in this class. You're going to thrust yourself forward. You're going to put your hand up. You're going to talk in class. You're going to meet me. Um, you're going to be all in. And, and a bunch of others of you are going to sit back, and your body language is going to say, dude, I'm just here to get a grade. Uh, I'm not into whatever it is you're trying to teach, um, and I just hope you'll make this easy for me. Um, and, and I said, and so I want you guys to know that the class will separate very early on in, into really three tiers, which is going to be kind of the fearless ones, not always sitting at the front, but the ones that are thrusting themselves into the fray, the middle ones, which are smart and capable. They just don't want to put their hands up. They don't want to talk in class. Um, they'll do what's asked of them, but I won't learn their names. Um, and then there will be a whole you know group of students that are looking to cut class, not do the readings, um, that are just kind of um, coasting along and hoping it works out down the road. Well, here's the beautiful thing about the NFL and, the, and professional sports, for that matter, is second and third groups don't make it. The talented guy that doesn't, it's not all in, is not going to make it in the NFL. And certainly the third group doesn't have a shot. Right. They probably will get eliminated through the draft evaluation process. 
So right. the only guys that have a chance are the guys that are in that first group that engage with the process, go all in, take risk, stick their neck out, and a lot of those guys aren't going to make it either. Right. And listen, they're all pro guys that get cut every year. You know, first-round draft choices that get cut. Players that don't live up to that evil word potential and get beat out by guys from universities that most people have never heard of. It's a hard business. But life is like that, right? And and I, I can't sit here and be cocky. I, you know, I've had my own failures, and I'm sure you have as well. And, and it's um, another part of it is how you pick yourself up off the ground. No question. Okay, so let's talk about first-rounders. They get drafted in the first round because of enormous potential. They've blessed with tremendous God-given ability in most cases. And depending on the position, they've got terrific performance as well. Why do roughly 50% of those guys bust year in and year out, and teams have spent millions of dollars, zillions of hours evaluating these guys, and yet still 50% or so end up becoming busts? Yeah, I think there are two factors that I, that I at least point to, and I think you would have a much better handle than I would. But, you know, one is that they've always been great in high school where the competition was pretty mediocre and then great in college where the competition was good, and now it's at a whole other level. And, you know, Joe Montana one time, I'm sure you've seen kind of the demonstration, I was at a, a small private event with, with him, and I can't act like I know him, but he was very kind and generous with his time. But he talked about a quarterback making a throw in high school, and, and he said the defensive back will be 10 yards off of the wide receiver. You know, if you can't hit a high school wide receiver, you don't have an arm. And then he talked about in college the defensive back would be about three yards off the receiver, you know, an arm's length. And then he kind of comes over and he sits on your lap and he says, if, if you can't, and we talk about the window or the small box, if you can't put the throw through this incredibly small window on just about every throw at the NFL level, you know, you're not cut out for the NFL. And some guys can't make that throw at, at that next level up. So my, my first thing is they're not ready for the degree of competition and, and what's required of them. I think the other thing is usually the money. You know, I, I hate to quote Cindy Lauper and say money changes everything, but, but you know, I, I think there's a, a point where you give a somebody who's never had any money $20 million for signing. I just think it's really hard to stay focused, that word we used a couple of moments ago, that the $20 million means nothing. You really have got to disregard what they just signed you for. You've got to get rid of the posse. You've got to come in like the lowest of the low and, and want it really bad. And yet I think year in and year out, there are first-round quarterbacks who you know show up at training camp in Rolls Royces, and it gets blown up right away. Well, Rick, those are terrific perspectives, and they're absolutely spot on. Haven't heard the first one said like you said it, but it's so true. It's difficult when great has to play against great. When great's playing against good, they're always great. But when great goes versus great, some great guy's going to lose. And that's that degree of competition. Greg, think about it. A lot of times when great goes against great and they've never gone against great or not a lot of great, they crumble. 
because it's the first time they've really had to deal with failure. And, and I, you know, Brady was a sixth round draft choice who was not an all-star in college. Good. But I think he had dealt with a lot of stuff that made him want it that much more. And listen, you got to give him props. I mean, a hundred years later, the fact that he's still making the throws he's making, that's defying gravity kind of thing. That's amazing. It's amazing. So we've got a passing of the torch in the Super Bowl coming up next week. Arguably the GOAT. I don't even think you need to argue about Tom Brady. I mean, he's, he's, he's by himself uh, at the top of the, the quarterback list in terms of just I don't care what generation. I don't care if they did before they had, before they had or when they had leather helmets. This guy is the undisputed GOAT. And then yeah. you've got Patrick Mahomes. What's your take on Patrick Mahomes? None better. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, technically in some ways he's better than Brady right now. The discussion of, of goatness is really kind of funny, old goat, young goat. Brady is the goat, although my guy would have been Johnny Unitas, but his statistics wouldn't hold up against Brady. But, I, you know, I think this is not an issue of who's better at throwing or, you know, who drops back in the pocket better or, you know, who goes through his progressions better. Uh, I think this is a question of a game, a single game where the storyline happily crowns Mahomes if he wins it. And and I think the sports writers will lose their mind if, if Brady wins it. They'll be happy to tell you that Mahomes is technically right now a better quarterback because he's 100 years younger than Tom. But I think that there's a decent chance that, that the Bucks win the game, and, and it's factors that Brady brings. But even if it's not Brady himself, if you look at Manning's last Super Bowl championship with Denver, he played pretty ordinarily. Uh, you know, I'm trying to look for a word that's like average. He did not have a great game, but Denver won the game. I don't think that that takes anything away from Peyton Manning's reputation as a great quarterback. And I don't think Tom has to have insane statistics in this game. I think Brady just has the win. And and that's what's, I think, interesting here is Mahomes is probably putting the team on his back. I think Brady is probably talking to his guys about what it's going to take. That's a great perspective. And I think that some of the, some of the, the most successful athletes realize you can't do it by yourself. And if Tom Brady can, you know, like this old saying, High tide raises all boats. Yeah. That's Brady. He's, he's, he's in the locker room, all three phases of the game. No, he's not playing. He's not on special teams, and he's not on defense, but he's there because he's helping everybody believe that we've, we've got a guy as a general that's done this six times and won it. So we're going to be okay. So it gives everybody a little bit more confidence than they would have than if there was another quarterback that was even – more physically gifted and 20 years younger than Tom. Yeah. And, and, and Craig, listen, this is the fun part. If Craig goes into that locker room with, I think the majority of the Tampa Bay Buckeyes have never played in a Super Bowl ever. Right. And, and if he says, Hey guys, listen to me, I've won this thing six times. I've lost it three times. This is what it takes. This is the difference between winning and losing. And this is how you have to think about the game. I think those guys are dialing in because who better to tell you what it's going to take? He's E.F. Hutton, so to speak, in terms of just, you know, everybody's going to listen to that guy. They're going to listen to him more than they're going to listen to their coaches. I think so. I mean, the coaches are going to have them 
drilled to what they have to do and everybody's going to know which plays they're going to run and, you know, how they have to win their own competition at left tackle. But but at the end of the day, I think there are some intangibles. And I'll give a shout-out to a great book that I'm using now in my class by a San Francisco sports writer named Joan Ryan, J-O-A-N, Joan Ryan, called Intangibles. And there are intangibles that the greats bring with them. And, and listen, Patrick Mahomes has the intangibles as well. So I think we're going to get a really good game. But I, I'm not opposed to the fact that Brady could win this with ordinary statistics. I agree with you. In Jones' book, Intangibles, everybody understands what that means. But was there anything that she said that was a surprise to you? She actually kind of got involved with the neurology of how a team is bonded together and almost kind of like the chemical functions in your head. And, and it's, you know, way too intelligent for me. She broke it, broke it down so that, you know, a third grader can understand it. But there, there are some real nuances to how you build intangibles with your teammates. And, and we get into areas of trust and belief and faith. And, you know, I think when Tom Brady came into that Bucks training camp, probably back in July, and when he started working out with his receivers, you know, when he started to, to gel with his offensive line, when he barked at guys um, who didn't do what they were supposed to do, people were either starting to buy into the intangibles that Tom represents or not. And, and I think the Chiefs have got their own, their own set of intangibles. So one is not necessarily better than the other, but you've got to have it. And I think that's what Joan found in her research was that, there is a huge value in how tightly wound a team is, how much they believe in each other. Well, and I think different successful coaches do it differently. Bill Snyder at Kansas State had the 16 family principles that he lived by to create a family. And then they demonstrated it physically before every game by walking arm in arm in lanes to come on the field for battle. And, you know, Nick Saban, he has the process. Right. And, it's like the process, since he's been so uber successful, the process allows him and his program to continue to be at the top of the college football world, even though his coordinators keep leaving. He's bringing in new people every year. But I agree with your point, Craig. It, it's, you know, whether we're talking the process in Tuscaloosa or we're talking about Snyder at K-State, you bond your team and, and you know, it's band of brothers. And I think football is our closest relative to, to warfare. And, you know, that, that trench mentality, that foxhole mentality, you've got to believe in your guys. And I think the teams that have superstars that stand apart from everybody else on the team, I think they usually struggle because they're not bonded with the rank and file. Well, there's no question that if you look at any college football season or any NFL season, and you see a team that has, like, spiked, you know, like Iowa State this year in college football, you know, beat Oklahoma, finished in the top ten, projected to be in the top ten next year. There has to be something special going on in the intangible area because on talent and on recruiting lists, they're not even in the top 40. And yet they're getting it done. And the NFL is the same way. Every year somebody pops up and wins their division or surprises everybody and they pretty much have the same guys they had before, maybe with the exception of one or two guys that are infused in the in the culture that changes the intangibles, that creates that unity, that brotherhood, 
that fellowship, all those things that describe, hey, I got your back, you got my back. Look at Buffalo and their quarterback, Allen, this past year, suddenly has the breakout year. His first two years, I think his statistics were among the worst in the NFL. And yet the Bills put the team, the right team together around him, and the Bills make it to the final four. And you can go in and you can study why these things happen. And and I think that's a lot of what Joan did uh, with her book. Yeah, you've written a couple books. Why don't you share one of yours? Well, you know, I think one that I'm I'm very proud of is is called uh, 20 Secrets to Success for NCAA Student-Athletes. And I think it's one that, in my role as the faculty athletic rep at at Syracuse, I'm pretty fortunate to be able to work closely with our athletic department and to get to know our coaches and a lot of our players. And I helped co-author a book. Uh, it is available on Amazon, uh, Rick Burton, uh, 20 Secrets. That ought to be enough coding to get you to the book. And, and it's really for high school kids coming out, getting ready to go into college, or college kids who are already playing the sport, you know, on a scholarship or during the four-year process. And it really is advice, kind of like if you look at Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, These are 20 secrets for NCAA student-athletes to get the absolute most out of their time in college. Rick, I want to to interject here. I want you to name one that would surprise the audience. You know, I I think it's a line from Oliver Luck, uh, who used to be the number two at the NCAA, and I'm just going to synthesize it down. It's that uh, your degree should be your A game plan and playing professional sports should be your B plan that you're trying during those four years of college to make sure that you get everything you can out of that university is going to set you up for the rest of your life. I think there's nothing sadder than looking at college athletes who were stars on the field for three or four years and five years after they graduate, you know, they're homeless. Or, or they really have nothing going on for them, and they, they put everything into being a pro athlete and the dream of the big money. And in a lot of cases, they get the big money early that first year, but then can't stick. But because they didn't put anything into trying to get a college education, they're now in a much worse off situation. So I think, you know, that the one major takeaway from 20 Secrets is that university is set up to have you be successful for the rest of your life. And if you get a college degree, there's a likelihood that you will always be employable, you know, if you manage to learn some things while you're in college. Okay, obviously I agree with that. And so my next question is not to be an antagonist. It's just to try to understand how do you balance what we talked about earlier and Olympians have to be all in. They have to be selfish. They have to be all in their sport, really not focused on school. In some years, they basically take a year off so they can just be 100% dedicated to their sport. Yeah, I think that they have to have resting periods. And, and listen, it takes a lot of discipline, but I think that in an age of online classes and Internet education and YouTube, I, I think the choice of saying I am only going to know about how to be good at my sport and nothing else is is a really narrow game plan. And that's why in, in our book, you know, we talk about make the rest of your life uh, the A plan and make your sport, even though it's what you're all in on, uh, make that the B plan because at some point you will stop being an athlete. 
and you'll have to go on to being other things. And and we think that you've got to make some kind of a commitment to, you know, the, the life you want 20 years from now that may not involve your sport. And, and I say that, Craig, because a lot of times we're talking about people who are 20. And quick funny story for you. You know, I had a job interview real early on in my career. I, I was um sports writer, as I mentioned, at the Syracuse paper, but I had the chance to interview for a job. I'd made it through all the entry-level interviews, and it done really well. And then the, the boss, the man making the decision, said, what do you see yourself doing five years from now? And I was like 21 years old. And five years from now was like 100 years from now. And, and I didn't give the right answer, and I didn't get the job. But I, I didn't give the right answer because I didn't understand that five years would happen really quickly. I thought five years was like 50 years. And, and in fact, five years is more like five minutes. So yeah. I think, I think we, we serve our young athletes really well by trying to get them to understand how time actually moves. And that's part of what we hope we do in, in our book. I think something else that people uh, make mistakes on is they cherry pick. So when you are sitting down with Tom Brady at the University of Michigan 23 years ago or whatever it's been, saying, hey, you better plan for life after football, there's not going to be much after that. I mean, he's, got, he's not going to have to work. He can make an impact on society. He can get involved in other businesses. He can, you know, run a foundation. He can do all these things. But he's been able to defy father time, play for more than two decades, And so what everybody does is they cherry pick. And every quarterback that comes through the system thinks they're going to be the next Tom Brady. I wish we had Tom on the call right now because I wonder if Drew Bledsoe hadn't gotten hurt. Is there an alternate universe where Tom Brady was a backup quarterback for two or three years and then out of the league? Oh. Um, And and, and I don't think we'll ever know. But but as I recall, I think – Tom paid attention while he was at the University of Michigan and actually got his degree, I think, and, and it might have been in business. And I have this feeling that Tom would have been really successful if he had ended up in the business world two or three years after he graduated. Some of that is just, I think, his drive. But I think we'll never know how close we came to never knowing about Tom Brady. Okay. Very good point. Point well taken. We could say that about every professional athlete. The difference between potentially being a Hall of Famer and being someone that's forgotten is very slim. Yeah, very, very slim. And listen, there are the GOATs, right? There are the Jordans and the LeBrons um, that are just spectacular athletes, but their commitment, and if you if you watched the Jordan documentary that was on during the summer when we were all locked in with COVID, I think his focus, back to that word, Man, man, was he dedicated. And, and I think LeBron is the same way, and I think Brady is the same way. And, and, and you know, the greats we talk about, uh, Sampras or, you know, Nadal, I mean, I, I don't know that it matters what sport you're in. These guys are just really, really dedicated to their craft. Rick, thank you so much for being on, and I just want to wish you the best of luck and just have a great day. Yeah, thanks, Craig, and uh, best to the family, and, and let me know if I can ever help again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pro Mindset. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can follow us on our website, promindsetpodcast.com, 
or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Pro Mindset Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you the next time.